Welcome to the Ordinary Pastor Podcast. This is season two. It is uh, sponsored by Sovereign Grace Churches. Sovereign Grace exists to plant and build healthy churches. And this podcast is also put forward by the Sovereign Grace Leadership Team. And our particular goal is to provide encouragement and resources for pastors. So we have a couple guys on today that are friends and fellow pastors in Sovereign Grace. And I'm hoping these guys will be regular hosts uh, on this podcast. Jared Mellinger is on. Jared is the lead pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church. He serves with me on the Sovereign Grace leadership team. And Josh Blunt, who is a pastor of Living Faith Church in Franklin, Tennessee, and a member of the Sovereign Grace Theology Committee, uh, which is dedicated to stewarding our statement of faith and our ordination standards in Sovereign Grace. So guys, thanks for being on today. Absolutely. Glad to. Looking forward to not only our conversation today, guys, but honestly, <laughs> hopeful that we can have other conversations in the future as well. Um, just so grateful for both of you guys, as you know, grateful for your friendship, grateful for the partnership we share in Sovereign Grace. And I'm just eager really for our pastors and any guests that happen to <laughs> find this podcast that they would benefit from you guys as well. So I just want to say up front that I love having your voices influence our pastors. And so I'm just, I'm grateful for the the chance to do that today. Um, I, I wanted to jump in and talk about our our statement of faith. Uh, so for, for 20 minutes or so, I, I just want to address the really remarkable event that took place over this last year where Sovereign Grace um, basically has a an expanded statement of faith. I, I wouldn't want to call it a new statement of faith because many of the things, as you guys know, that we've had historically in our, our statement of faith are still present and honored in this statement of faith. But it, it's it's quite a bit longer. It's <laughs> The paragraphs are longer. It's a lot more extensive. And both of you men uh, did work. Josh, I, I particularly wanted to highlight your work uh, on the Sovereign Grace Theology Committee for years um, but both of you men did hard work on this statement of faith and our family of churches put it forward. So I just wanted to talk about that today because I think it's a pretty historic moment and event. Um, and I wanted to begin that conversation actually by looking backwards because this statement of faith wasn't creating a new theological foundation for us. It really was building on the foundation that as, as younger ish pastors, um, we really received a lot of this theological foundation from those who came before us, the founding pastors of Sovereign Grace. And really, they received it uh, from our our Reformed uh, tradition. And uh, so we just want to kind of honor that heritage. So let me just ask this question. First of all, let you guys jump in. What are the ways that you guys or that we are grateful for our historical heritage of theology and sovereign grace that led to uh, this recent version of our statement of faith. How, how would you guys speak to your gratefulness for our, our theological heritage? I was thinking about this as someone who, um, you know, growing up in sovereign grace churches, and uh, it occurred to me from my from my late teens, you know, so for over twenty years now, I haven't had a theological trajectory. You know, um, hopefully I'm going deeper into the theology that I've, that I've received, but, but the doctrines really are the same. It's what, it's what the, the, uh, pastors, leaders of, of sovereign grace have taught, have, uh, have invested, uh, in me and in, um, you know, 
following generations. And so it's just, it's such a rich thing to not have to, to, to not have to grow up in, uh, in a ministry, a family of churches that's saying, okay, I'm going to leave behind these aspects of my denomination, you know, of my theological upbringing and embrace these other aspects, but to really have so much uh, that has simply been inherited. Uh, it's, so this statement mm-hmm. of faith really is a, uh, it's it's a it's a legacy of um, of what we have believed, what we do, you know, what we do believe, and uh, and we are we are put we've put into writing and affirmed those things that we have believed um, over over the mm-hmm. years. Yeah, that's good, Josh. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, well, as a someone else who's also grown up in Sovereign Grace and had that same experience, a a non-theological trajectory. That's a good way to put it. Um, and I think along with that, one of the things I was thinking on this question, just how many places through our history we've been protected um, by especially CJ leading us in thinking through doctrine and theology and becoming um, over the years, becoming less theologically idiosyncratic, uh, if I can put it that way, where voices that would have influenced us at times haven't done that and have veered, you know, in some way marked in tragic ways. And just look and think how kind of the Lord over the years to preserve us from that and um, largely keep us in the same place, the same reformed theological heritage, not trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, Novelty is not a good thing in a statement of faith or a denomination's theological heritage. Um, And I think the statement of faith represents that God's protected us from veering into places where novelty would have been appealing and destructive. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful that we haven't gone there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful too. I'm, I'm just going to restate in, in my own way, what you guys have just said that for a, a family of churches, a denomination that was born out of a season of revival and passion that we didn't remain only focused on passion and affection and, um, because I, I don't think, well, first of all, I don't think that would have been maintainable, sustainable, um, you know, affection just driven by itself uh, eventually runs out <laughs> uh, of its own affection, has to be fueled by, by doctrine, by truth. And so given that we were born basically out of a revival in the 70s, it, it would have been possible for us to just merely be a passionate family of churches. So for us to be increasingly a doctrinal family of churches that has very defined uh, statements of faith and doctrine that, that aren't even necessarily overly narrow. They're, they're fairly uh, robust. Um, that, that I think makes me grateful for the leaders who came before us uh, who weren't content with, with emotion alone, um, but wanted us to keep growing theologically. So really grateful for how this statement of faith builds on that heritage when I, we just want to honor all three of us, I think have a, a high view of honoring the shoulders we're standing on the men that, that uh, were determined to lay a theological foundation um, in sovereign grace. So yeah, John, I, I want to talk a little John, bit about, on that point, I was just reading, yeah. I want to add one more thing. I was reading a, a book recently called on institutional thinking by a man named uh, Hugh Hecklow, but he talks about part of what's involved in institutional thinking is is the this category of the joy of faithful reception and seeing yourself as a receiver 
you know, of something that 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 we're mostly in a position mm -hmm. of receiving something, not inventing or creating something. And so I think that that idea of yeah. the faithful reception of something that has been handed down to us is uh, it's something I know each one of you guys and that we value and live with that, you know, that sense of, but it's a part of thinking larger than ourselves about um, what, about this sort of institutional treasure and heritage that we've received. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. It's very good. I've, I've thought a lot about the category of knowing God's providential placement of you in history and um, how true that is even throughout the history of the church, where you had people that, so to speak, had to rediscover the biblical doctrines and sort of pioneer a rediscovery of them at different moments. And then others who that wasn't their calling, that wasn't yeah. their their purpose in the providence of the Lord. Their job was to take what had been rediscovered um, and, and, and build upon that foundation. And I mean, that goes all the way back to Paul's exhortation to Timothy. T Timothy wasn't called yeah. to be the apostle to the Gentiles and explaining for the first time, so to speak, about things like legalism, uh, the Galatian epistle and so forth. But but he was to to build on that foundation. And so I think as I think of the three of us, there ought to be providentially a, a gratefulness in seeing our place in our, our little part of the, the church story where we, we are not first generation men, yeah. so to speak. We're, we're second generation men looking back on a, a fresh celebration of these doctrines of grace and called to to repeat them and build on them and hold firm to them. Um, it's a different, different moment in history. Yeah. And I, I think enjoying that and being grateful to the Lord for that is, is part of what we're called to do. So um, let me ask you guys about um, why do we have a, a statement of faith that is multiple pages long um, when we also have um, seven shared values, and even more simply than that, we have a, a self, um, a, a gladly self-acclaimed gospel-centered focus. So to, to put it one way, why not just limit ourselves to uh, preaching the gospel proper and that being the, the link between our family of churches? Or maybe if we were going to expand it a little bit beyond that, just having seven shared values. Why, why go beyond that? to having a, a more robust statement of faith that, that pastors, if they're going to be in sovereign grace, have to affirm. Why not just have a, a more limited or, or more broad, if you want to think of it that way, um, affirmations like those seven shared values, like, like the gospel proper? What do you guys see as the advantage or the necessity of a broader statement of faith? Yeah. It's a really good question. Um, one of the thoughts that occurs to me, so I'll take that second part first, that why not just say we're gospel centered? Um, there was an article that Thomas Kidd, the historian from Baylor, a Christian historian, wrote recently on the Gospel Coalition that interestingly, he was he said, I wanted to track the use of the phrase gospel centered or or its functional equivalents. And he did the, did so by looking at publishing trends in the Christian world over the last century or more. And one of the things that was interesting stood out to me about that, he said that term became popular um, early on in the 20th century associated with the social gospel movement. And those would be considered more theological progressives or liberals as a way of distinguishing themselves. They were only about the gospel. But the problem was that then how do you define that gospel? Um, what What is the essence? What is the core? And I think one of the 
my argument, you know, for why we need a statement of faith and not merely being gospel centered is it sets the gospel in its proper context. Mm -hmm. And without that, without a affirmation of all the other strands of biblical truth that um, that are the foundation of the gospel, we're vulnerable to twisting gospel centered or gospel only in ways that through generations become progressively unfaithful to the gospel. Um, so if we lack that broader context, it's much harder to say, well, what do you mean when you say you're gospel centered? Mm, um, sort of in the way that, you know, if if you're talking in the sports world, if you say someone has set up a football club and then the Brits come and they set up a football club, now everybody has to use more words to explain what do you mean by a football club? What kind mm -hmm. of football? What rules apply in this football club? We have to have more words to be able to explain what do we mean when we say we're gospel centered, that we believe in um, substitutionary atonement and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So at least, for, especially for that gospel centered part, yes, we are gospel centered, but that can become meaningless or a wax nose unless it's set in the full biblical context and has the, the necessary biblical foundations to support what the Bible means when it says we are about the gospel. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I think Jerry, it's, it's good for every, for every union of churches, for every denomination, there's, there's a benefit to having a degree of like-mindedness and unity, not just on the primary matters of first importance, but also on secondary and tertiary matters. So there are, there are th the things that are included in our statement of faith are not all, these are the essentials for what a healthy church is. And if you don't believe these, then your church is not healthy. There's actually a lot of healthy churches that would, uh, healthy gospel-centered churches that would differ with points of our of our statement of faith. The benefit that you have then though of, of um, building more narrowly is a tremendous amount of mm -hmm. unity and like-mindedness when it comes to who we are doctrinally. So then rather than, than spending our time debating and disagreeing with each other, we're able to enjoy such like-mindedness and focus on our on our mission together. And so, while there may be appeals to being a part of something that is, uh, you know, that is much larger and 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 broader, and there may be a place for that, I I really think that uh, for me, so much of the joy of of uh, belonging to a denomination, to a family of churches, is the degree of that the degree of theological and practical uh, like-mindedness that that we enjoy uh, that's articulated in mm -hmm. in the in the doctrines in our statement of faith, and then it, in, you know in terms of it being different than than our shared values, our shared values are our categories, but there's a lot that's not covered there. If you just consider what the shared values are, and then consider what we have in our statement of faith is really a confessional document that deals mm -hmm. systematically and uh, and precisely with, with precision uh, regarding theological truth, regarding um, mm -hmm. who God is, regarding the person and work of, of Christ and, and many other aspects that are good and appropriate to, uh, in a confessional context, to lay out with precise wording and, uh, and language that we can affirm together. Yeah, very good. I think, and again, I, similar to what I was mentioning before, I think there was a level of unity based on shared um, conversion experience that that would have united some of the early 
generations in churches of sovereign grace. And as, um, as we've gotten older and p- people have joined us that weren't saved in the seventies or that grew up in a Christian church, or maybe even have joined us from, from other denominational traditions, um, the, the need for clarifying, uh, you know, as you said, Jared, even tertiary doctrines, wh- where do we agree? Where do we sort of draw a line of denominational identity without in any way meaning that we don't express gratefulness for the wider body of Christ? Uh, but we want, we want to draw a sovereign grace identity line uh, so that those that had, you know, different backgrounds in the faith can understand, okay, who, who are we in terms of a, um, the, the broader doctrines of Christianity? Where, where do we find ourselves, um, you know, in that, that broader uh, tradition of orthodoxy? So uh, very, very grateful for that. Um, yeah, I think um, one more thought on that, Jared, the, I mean, uh, John and Jared, the, uh, the link between our, our statement of faith and our, um, our polity, and I mean that more broadly than merely the BCO, but our shared mission together that um, on s- secondary and tertiary issues, there are places where we could disagree charitably with good brothers in the Lord um, and meaningfully participate in certain aspects of mission together. But it becomes much more difficult to execute the kind of life together as a family of churches that we're about um, that you know makes us a distinct ecclesial union. Um, if there's not that kind of agreement. So I would, I'd happily share my pulpit with someone from a Presbyterian background or from a you know particular strand of Baptist background. It's much more difficult to invite, for instance, that person in to counsel a pastoral team in conflict or to work through planting churches in, a, in another context where we have to wrestle with issues of the sacraments or how, are we, how is church membership going to be handled. So it just strikes me as we're having this conversation that one of the benefits of the statement of faith is because we're expressing agreement on not merely primary matters, but secondary and tertiary matters, we're much better equipped um, to actually practice life together and mission together right. than we would be if we just left some vague um, gray areas around the margins that are the kind of things that get squeezed when you're in mission and counseling and crisis mode. Those are the places that you need to know that, hey, we're in agreement. I trust you and I know where you yeah. stand on a whole host of matters, not merely the basics that I share with all believers around the world. Yeah. Excellent. Very, very good. Uh, let me ask something that just, this is a bit more of a practical question, but uh, you guys know um, the value that, that we hold as sovereign grace pastors and preachers of, of Sunday morning exegetical preaching. Um, so many sovereign grace churches would have as their, I might even say most, as let's say their their majority diet, in some cases almost their exclusive diet, but certainly majority diet would be exegetical preaching. We're, we're you know taking a book of of the Bible and we're working through it one section at a time in an exegetical format. Um, what are some ways? Obviously, our statement of faith is is not that it, it is systematic theology. It's walking through categories of doctrine. What are some ways that you guys have found that you think our pastors have modeled? Um, upholding the value of systematic theology at a local level, especially when your primary or majority mode of Sunday teaching is going to be um, walking through sections of scripture and it's not normally going to be systematic. What are some ways that you can kind of hold on to that value of systematic theology at a local level? Take it, Jared. Well, one of the first things that I think of is how I don't know if it's like this way in the churches that you guys serve, but for us, uh, 
Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is, I think, like in most homes in terms of on the on the shelf. And it's just sort of a standard. And there's been small groups that have studied it and read. And there's been that real sense of of every Christian should be pressing into uh, theological study uh, beyond what beyond what happens as important and even as central as the the Sunday morning sermon is. I think that that devotion that the early church had to the apostles' teaching needs to include more than just you know forty minutes a week in terms of uh, of of uh, intake of truth. So I do. So I think that there is the whole category of reading as, as theological study, and even our our statement of faith provides opportunities. Um, you know, for that, the part of the way that we've looked to, to do that at Covenant Fellowship is to encourage theological reading, to encourage the study of, uh, you know, uh, of, of systematic Bible doctrine uh, in, in various ways and look to equip, uh, equip people in that. I know different churches have done different, different things with this. Um, I, I would, it's important to not pit the two entirely against each other, right? Because systematic theology has a role to play in our expositional preaching week in and week out. So we just recently started First Peter. It was just a week or two ago that I'm the, early on there who's caused us to be born again to a living. Okay, so there's the doctrine of regeneration, you know, who by God's power are being guarded there in First Peter 1. Okay, there's the doctrine of, uh, of the, the perseverance of the saints. You know, there's these... Uh, there's these doctrines that will emerge in the course of expositing God's word. And I think that we can help people to, those are moments that the, that in our preaching, we can say, okay, here is this biblical doctrine that is affirmed, uh, you know, throughout, throughout scripture. Um, it's worth to, I mean, what, what we did as a church was, was paused when the statement of faith came out and did a, a series somewhere between 10 and 12 sermons on the statement of faith on different doctrines so we're just doing it basically a series on various bible doctrines on sunday morning coming out of a particular text spending some time expositing that text but also focusing on the larger uh doctrine normally we'll be preaching through books of the bible but it, when we do that kind of mm. preaching preaching through the statement of faith it's not that we have moved away from preaching the bible we are we are asking the question: What does the whole Bible say about this particular this particular truth? And uh, mm -hmm. and answering that, you know that that question. So in our church culture, and I think in most sovereign grace churches, I don't know what kind of uh, you know Sunday school uh, adult teaching context there are. I feel like at Covenant Fellowship, that's an area that we could grow more in and we're having conversations about that but i think where those contexts exist those churches are to be applauded and i think that something like mm -hmm. uh teaching systematic theology or teaching through our statement of faith in th those kinds of uh, uh, additional contexts is a is a wonderful idea um having small groups you know read through and and have fellowship around the statement of faith those kinds of ideas can be ways to reinforce systematic theology in a way that doesn't uh minimize at all the the what happens on sunday mornings mm -hmm. yeah very good yep i just uh, agree they're very good thoughts um just two two particular areas that i there 
come to mind for me. One is pastoring a small church and just thinking of, and we've talked about, love the idea of being able to do Sunday morning classes, um, but there are only three of us uh, on our pastoral team and uh, we all have other things we're doing on Sunday mornings. And we sort of dream about, wouldn't it be nice to wave the magic wand and have an hour where we didn't have to do something else to get ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that context, one of the things I'd want to say is if you're a pastor listening to this and and that's your reality too, where there's just not time to teach something additional, um, modeling a, a desire for good books and reading and having books in your books or talking about good books, the kinds of things Jared's saying, that's one way I think you can just uh, highlight the importance of sound doctrine in um, the everyday church uh, members' lives. But mm. I would want to say that I think a pastor bears a, a more um, significant degree of responsibility for pursuing systematic theology than the ordinary church member does. And if mm. you're feeding your church um, expository preaching, and that's all you have room for, uh, that is both enough. Don't worry about, and well, you know, if I don't have a class and my, my church members maybe can't define the doctrine of spiration and eternal generation because they, I don't have a time to teach a class on the Trinity. That's fine. But I think that does put more of a burden on the pastor to make sure, um, are you growing in your theological understanding? Because mm-hmm. even when the only place we're teaching is preaching from a text, systematic theology is lurking in the background. Um, right. and I think that one of the main ways it's lurking in the background is what do you think you need to make an aside and explain in light of the whole Bible in the context of a sermon? And what do you just skip over? You know, so most of us, I think when we come to a, a passage, you know, if you're going through John where you hear Jesus say something like the father is greater than I, or I and the father are one, a light bulb's going to go off. I need to explain something about how this fits into Trinitarian doctrine, that Jesus is not just the father with another mask and Jesus is not subordinate to the father. But that's an easy one. You can think of so many other categories where you're preaching through where as a pastor, your systematic theology, your, your understanding of the whole Bible is going to affect what you think you need to step back and say, now, I need to explain this in the context of all of Scripture. It could be something as simple as when you come to preaching an imperative, um, your systematic theology of how grace and works and endurance, how those play together is going to influence whether you just preach the imperative and make no reference to the work of Christ to establish that, or whether you explain away the imperative and say, but we know grace motivates us and we don't actually have to do these sorts of things. So systematic theology is valuable and necessary uh, for every believer, but there's a distinct need for the pastor to do this. So if you're feeling overwhelmed or I don't have the opportunity to teach anything else, make sure on your own that you're feeding your soul and sharpening your thinking outside of the Sunday morning context, because it's all going to play into how you feed the church through the pulpit in the Sunday morning context. Yeah, that's that, excellent. That's really good. One other thought for the the pastor who doesn't have, you know, the, the, the time where the time restraints are there. One way to teach systematic theology is to occasionally in the Sunday service, take a portion of that service to read a paragraph from the, the statement of faith in the in the gathered assembly you will be through communicating those truths teaching those uh, that right. those systematic theological truths in a way that requires very minimal prep you know throughout the throughout the history of the church the reading of, of creeds and confessions has been a part of the the gathered saints and so it could be just right. that it's something once a quarter or every other month or, or once a, you know part of it is read but i'd say oh if you've gone over half a year and the church hasn't 
there hasn't been anything related to, to creeds or confessions in the, the Sunday morning service, both the historic creeds and confessions and our own uh, in, in Sovereign Grace, that could be an area that you look at and say, okay, let's occasionally read one of these sections to, uh, as, as a means of instructing the people of God in, in sound doctrine. Very good. Yeah, love those thoughts, guys. One other um, idea here is just just to remember that the singing portion of our meeting is essentially a training in systematic theology. Um, is is one way to remember it too. That most of our songs, almost all of our songs, are systematic theology. You know, typically you don't have an exegetical song um, that's kind of walking through. Uh, one maybe you do Bible memory songs, but a lot of the songs are are seeking to ask a, a question about a topic and then providing a brief meditation on that topic. So one way, especially for the pastor, which is the ordinary pastor, uh, Josh is talking about, you know, smaller team. Maybe he's alone. Maybe there's a couple of them um, there together. Is to take a, a, a look at the song diet of the church from a systematic theology gaps perspective. And to ask, look, if people sang our songs, would there be any systematic theological gaps in their thinking about God and salvation and the church? And that's been a helpful exercise for me over the years is just to ask, okay, are there, are there any categories of theology that we never sing about? And it might mean you have to go hunt down uh, some songs that are a little harder to find or find you know somebody that's got some gifting in songwriting and, and appeal to them to find those songs for you that are solid. And, but that can be a very useful um, training tool um, to, to think, okay, what songs would, would teach our people? And you know you guys know the quotes about how long people remember songs even compared to sermons. Uh, that actually can be a very effective way of training people the truths of the faith uh, just through singing. Mm-hmm. So um, well, guys, I'm going to close this down so we don't go over the 30-minute mark here. But let me just say how grateful I am for you guys. And if you are a Sovereign Grace pastor and you're listening to this, on behalf of the leadership team, and I know on behalf of these two guys as well, we love you. We are grateful for you. Thank you for shepherding the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Thank you for preaching Christ and him crucified. God be with you, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>